Heavenly Father, we love you. And uh, this week has been a challenging week for many of us. Extremely challenging for some. And um, I'm asking for your presence to come here and meet us. Some of us need to see specific things in the word today. Some of us need to be encouraged by your grace through the scriptures. Some of us need to be embraced by the love and hope that are only found in Christ Jesus. And some of us just need to feel your healing touch. Some of us just need to feel joy in your presence. And so my prayer today, Father God, as we open your word, is that your word, which is spirit and life, would come and would awaken that joy and gladness in you, Father God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. The 16th chapter of the book of Matthew opens with this uh, stunning encounter between Jesus and the two ruling classes of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Um, and it goes like this. It says, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The book of Jonah is a very small book tucked away in the middle of the minor prophets, and yet it surfaces right here in the ministry of Jesus unlike any other prophet it invades the New Testament in this scene, the story of Jonah. The Pharisees and Sadducees, you, you probably know they are opposing theological classes within the Jewish faith, unite in order to test Jesus. And so they ask him to show them a sign, proof that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Now Jesus has already provided sign after sign after sign at this point. He has done miracle after miracle in their presence. So you should know that this is not an innocent request. They're not interested in validating his ministry. They're not interested in validating that he is the Christ, which is why Jesus responds in the way that he does. He says, you know the weather based on the look of the clouds in the sky. It's meteorology 101. You, know the, you guys remember the storm last night? Nobody was confused about that. There was a storm going on last night, a thunderstorm. Very rare in these parts. <laughs> Yet, he says, you ignore the signs of the times. In other words, they should know. This is not a lack of evidence on their part. He's already provided all the evidence that they need, and yet they ignore it, which is why Jesus says in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that statement? He means that their questioning of him isn't, about needing proof, it is about forsaking their husband, God. That's what their question shows. This word adulterous isn't referring to them not adhering to their marital vows personally. This word adulterous refers to their affections and love belonging to something other than the one true God. It is spiritual adultery. 
And we know this because the Bible's clear about the Pharisees that they were lovers of money, Luke 16, 14. They loved the praise of man, John 12, 43, and they loved the seat of honor, to just name a few, Matthew 23, 6. They had other lovers instead of God. They're not interested in the truth about Jesus. They're only interested really in maintaining their adultery. And therefore, they supply him with this test, which Jesus responds to them with, no sign will be given to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. So here we are. We've come to Jonah in the New Testament. This is called the sign of Jonah. We've been in Jonah for about a month now. We are about to go into the fourth chapter. (laughs) But before doing that, where things will take a sudden and unexpected, if you haven't read the book of Jonah, unexpected hard turn in chapter 4, I wanted to come here and to look at this passage about the prophet of Jonah. In light of everything that we've seen happen last week in the the city of Nineveh, the repentance, this great revival, how does that reality infiltrate the New Testament? We said earlier that the book of Jonah is about grace. It is about profound grace, about astonishing grace and even absurd grace for God to save sinners, not just Nineveh, not just the sailors, but Jonah and really everyone. Everyone is included there. But when we see Jonah surface here in the New Testament, at least initially, this sign is not a sign of grace. It's a sign, it appears to be a sign, at least, of judgment and condemnation. And for us to understand Jonah rightly, We need to understand what Jesus makes of Jonah when he brings him into the New Testament. How does Jesus weave this prophet's story into his own life, his work, his ministry? And so if you do have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please grab them and turn with me to Matthew 12, verse 38, which is, we're going to be camped out in Matthew 12 all of our time today. We're going to find here in Matthew 12, starting with verse 38, um, a very similar scene to what we just saw. Not exactly alike, but similar. We will find here an explanation for the sign of Jonah. So let's start with verse 38. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, but he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So it's seen almost identical, and it's very similar, almost identical, though they are different in ways, and we can see why Matthew would include both of them. The distinctions are important. Um, these Pharisees and, and scribes, they ask for a sign, again, these religious leaders, and Jesus says exactly what he, he will say later. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. But here, what he does is he unpacks what he means when he says the sign of Jonah. What does he mean by that? He says here, 
The connection is Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish. And so will the Son of Man, that's Jesus, that's Jesus Christ, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so it's clear that the thing that links Jesus to Jonah in this passage, this sign that we see here is related to his death and his resurrection. Him being buried in the earth for three days and then him rising like Jonah survived this great fish that he was in the belly for three days of. Now what's interesting about this there's several things that are interesting, but what's interesting about this is Jesus hasn't died yet. Jonah only preached to Nineveh after he was swallowed and spit out by the great fish. But Jesus is preaching now. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't rose from the dead. So for everyone, but probably him and his readers that are reading post-contemporaneously, um, this sign is effectively meaningless if they're trying to understand the resurrection. This sign has no meaning right now because he hasn't died and rose again. And we also know that because of their resistance to who he is and their defiance, even in the face of miracles, even if he were to rise from the dead, that would be no indicator to these people. Matthew 28, if we go back to the back, of the, you don't need to do this, but if you go back to the back of the book, Matthew 28 has this scene where Jesus rises from the dead. The guards see it happen. They know that something supernatural has happened. They report it to the same people and they cover it up. They cover it up. They don't want to hear about the resurrection. And they tell him, just say that his disciples went and stole the body. Pay him off. And so, the sign of Jonah isn't a sign of evidence of, of who Jesus is because he rose from the dead, at least not for them. They, they're not going to believe anything. Why would Jesus mention the sign of Jonah now? What is his purpose in doing that? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 41 why this is critical, why he mentions it now. Verse 41 says this, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, the generation of religious leaders that he's with, and will condemn it. They'll condemn the generation. For they repented, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, so the point of the connection between Jesus, who was buried in the heart of the earth for three days and nights, and Jonah, who was swallowed by this great fish yet survived, is this. The men of Nineveh, who were wicked, evil, and violent. We've enumerated that many times. They, however, will judge and condemn the generation of religious leaders of Jesus' time. Why is that? Because Nineveh repented, and these leaders refused to do so. Nineveh repented. Nineveh heard the words of Jonah, God through Jonah, and repented. We said last week that God overturned a city. He overturned their hearts. And yet, these men are in front of Jesus... And they will ultimately invite the condemnation of a pagan city 700 years earlier who repented at the words of, of Jonah because they refused to repent. They refused to turn to God. Even though, think about this, Jesus Christ is standing in front of them. The son of the living God is staring them at, in the face a man who is infinitely greater than every human being who's ever lived and ever will live in every way, which is why Jesus can say to them, behold, look, 
something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is greater than Jonah. And for Christians who follow Jesus, that's indisputable at every level. But what this does for us as we read through this passage is it creates a question, a huge question. If Christ would have mentioned any other prophet, I mean any other prophet from the Old Testament, if he would have mentioned any other prophet here, his words probably could have been read without stopping, without any pause. We could have said, okay, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, prophets are good, but Jesus is better. That's what we would have said. Prophets are good, but Jesus is better in every way. But he mentions Jonah. And if you've been with us at all for the last month, you know that Jonah doesn't really fit into a category of good. His only major role in the Bible his book is a story of his disobedience. And so, why would you choose, why, Jesus, why would you choose a, a broken, sinful man who is disobeying God to compare yourself to rather than any other prophet? Any other prophet? And you need to keep in mind that this isn't a matter of Jesus thinking back, back through history and picking somebody and saying, okay, I'm kind of like Jonah because Jonah was in there for three days and then he rose from the dead. Um, that's who I'm going to be like. That's not what's going on here. You have to realize the whole testimony of Scripture and specific passages like Colossians 1.16 um, and Romans 11 talk about everything existing for the glory of Christ Jesus. Everything exists for him, for him, including Jonah. So Jesus isn't trying to find a compelling comparison to sort of contrast with um, in Jewish history the main reason Jonah has a story at all, at all, is because of Jesus. Jesus was the reality that Jonah was pointing to. Jonah, Jesus is not reflecting Jonah at all. So God could have had this event with this fish or something similar to that that would have created the same spiritual analogy. He could have had it happen to anyone in history just to show that Jesus is superior. Yet Jonah is the one, strangely enough, that he uses to foreshadow Christ, a disobedient prophet who, when he's given a command to preach to a pagan Gentile nation, runs in the opposite direction. And so why do that? Well, the answer, I believe, is not far off. It's actually in chapter 12. There are events that lead up to Jesus saying, telling them of this sign. And I want to look at them and briefly draw out reasons for the sign being what it is. Why is this sign given? And my prayer, really for this morning, is, is that it has two effects. That, that, this, that looking at this passage that we're about to look at has two effects on our hearts. The first is that in these reasons, we will see absolutely why Jesus is greater in every way than Jonah. We will see why Jesus is exceedingly great and worthy of our worship and affection. And number two we will be invited into the same mission and purpose that Jesus Christ committed to when he was here. Those are the two effects that I'm hoping here. Jesus displays his greatness in very unique, profound ways, and we're going to look at them from a prophecy that was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. <clears throat> and so, do me a favor, skim backward in Matthew 12 to verse 14. Uh, and you're going to see an incident that happens immediately after Jesus 
has healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Jewish leaders are not happy with him at all at this point. And we find this verse, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now this is before the sign has happened, before he said anything about the sign. So again, it's clear, just as a reminder, they're not interested in evidence. They hate Jesus and they want him dead. That's the bottom line for them. They want him dead. It says they sought how to destroy him. They're not looking for signs to validate his, his authority as Christ. They want him out of the equation. And so how does Jesus respond to them? How does Jesus respond to this threat that he knows is there? It says it in verse 15 and 16. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Ordered them not to make him known. So his response, now think about this. I don't know how you would respond here, but if I was the son of God, I'd probably respond a little bit differently than he responds here. He doesn't call down fire. He doesn't call down 12 legions of angels, though we know from Matthew 26 he absolutely could do that. He doesn't fight back, he withdraws. He removes himself from their hostility. He goes elsewhere, all the while still continuing to heal everyone who's following him. It says right here, Jesus healed them all. And then he ordered them not to make him known. Now, why would you do that? If you're the son of God and salvation is through no other name but Jesus Christ, which is true, why would you do that? Well, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, is not broadcasting his ministry in order to attract attention and build a reputation for himself. That's not what he's about. He is avoiding notoriety. He is avoiding publicity. And there's several reasons for this. There are several specific reasons for this that we see throughout the scriptures. But the main one for in this text is that Jesus is conducting his ministry different than anyone would expect him to. Completely different than anyone would expect him to. And Matthew is going to highlight those differences here by quoting a passage from the Old Testament. Verse 17 and beyond says this. The reason Jesus did this was to fulfill what was spoken about, spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So the reason that Jesus is going about his ministry this way, not fighting, not creating a spectacle, not drawing attention to himself, but instead withdrawing and loving and caring for the people who are with him is because of this passage. It's because of this passage. Matthew is citing Isaiah 42, and he's saying that Jesus's ministry, how he went about his ministry is a fulfillment of this text. Matthew is saying that, that the prophecy that we read about in Isaiah is looking ahead to Christ. It's looking ahead to the Messiah. And that Messiah is Jesus. 
And the reason this is important is because Matthew, before we ever even get to a sign in verse 38, Matthew is showcasing what it is about Jesus we need to know. What is it about Jesus that Matthew wants us to know before we get to verse 38 and before we hear about the sign of Jonah? This is who Jesus really is. This passage in Isaiah is who Jesus is. It is a description, a bio of the Messiah written seven centuries before he was even born. And Matthew is holding it out prior to Jesus saying in verse 41, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And interestingly enough, when we look at this passage from Matthew 12, we see that the first word that is used, quoted by the prophet, or from the prophet Isaiah, is this word, behold, the same word that Jesus will use 20 verses later in order to compare himself to Jonah. I don't think this is an accident. I don't think it's an accident because Matthew's going to tell us in this passage why it is specifically, not generally, there are 10 trillion ways that Jesus is better than Jonah. Everywhere. But what is it specifically about the Messiah that is so glorious and so awesome that makes him so much greater than Jonah who preached to Nineveh an entire city overturned? And God, speaking through Isaiah, says this. This is how he begins. He says, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. God, through Isaiah, is talking about Jesus, his son. And he's expressing, as you can see, great love, great love and affection. He calls him my servant. Jesus is God's servant in a way that nobody else is. My chosen one. When you are God God Almighty and you want to send the Messiah into the world, you don't choose from a bunch of broken people. You create your choice. And Jesus, the co-eternal Son of God, is that reality. And so he's talking about Jesus here. The beloved of God. This is, I will put my spirit upon him because... My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Every aspect of God's being is well pleased with Jesus. There is nothing in Jesus that God has an issue with. Think about that. There is no defect in Christ. He is perfect in every way. And so God tells him through this passage, I will put my spirit upon him. The spirit of God is going to rest on Jesus. And what John 3.34 would tell us Why is the Spirit of God resting on the Son of God if he is the Son of God? There's a reason why. And it is because it is through the Spirit of God that Jesus speaks the words of God. Even God the Son had the Spirit to speak the words of God. And this is critical for us to understand at a personal level because we're going to come back to this. Before Jesus began speaking anything about God publicly, as we have it recorded in the Scriptures, the Spirit came and was resting on him. God gives Jesus his spirit because it is through the spirit that Jesus speaks the words of God. That's how he begins his ministry, which is exactly what we see in the second part of verse 18. It says, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So this is the words of God. Now, the question here is, what does he mean by justice? What does he mean by justice? There's a lot of different ways we can understand this. What is justice in this text? 
Justice in this passage, both in Matthew 12 and Isaiah 42, is the eradication of injustice. It is the removal of sin and crime and evil. And that's what Matthew is drawing from, from Isaiah 42. It is a world that has been made free from sin and from the effects of sin. And what Matthew presents next in this passage, in this prophecy, are three powerful pictures of what it is about the Messiah that what he will look like as he makes this proclamation of justice. What will he look like? How will he act? How will he work in the world? And so there are three of them. The first, so if you're a note taker, you may want to, these are headings, I guess, for an outline. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> uh, the first is this, who is this message for? The second is, how is this message presented? And the third is, when does this happen? When does this occur? So who, how, and when? We're going to start with number one. Who is this message for? Well, according to Matthew, this prophecy says that the Christ, when he comes, will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, which I think for most of us who are familiar with the gospel, sounds a little strange. I was talking to JT about this. Sounds strange. Because we know from throughout the gospels, and even in Matthew, Matthew 10 and Matthew 15, two great examples, that it's made very clear that Jesus was sent to the children of the house of Israel, the Jewish people, not Gentiles. There's no question when you read the gospels that Jesus was clearly sent to the Jewish Messiah. He was sent for the people of Israel. And yet we know, excuse me, we know <laughs> that there are clear exceptions to this, that throughout the Gospels there are clear exceptions to him actually going to Jewish people. For example, the Roman centurion of Capernaum, or the men of Gadarenes, or uh, even the example that I just gave you from Matthew 15, if you remember the, the Canaanite woman, who went to Jesus because her little girl was demon-possessed and pleaded with him through faith to save her, and Jesus does. And even right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the book of Matthew, Matthew 4, there's another prophecy that Isaiah, that Matthew lists from Isaiah, and it explicitly says that Jesus is the light to the Gentiles who are in the darkness. And so how are we to understand this if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, if he's sent to the people of Israel? Well, these places that are scattered throughout the Gospels where Jesus is directing mercy to people outside the nation of Israel are pictures that foreshadow a command at the end of this book. Matthew 28, at the very end of this book, very last few verses, Jesus tells his followers to make disciples of all nations, all nations. This is the Great Commission, and it means that Jesus isn't just the Savior of Israel. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. And there's this incident in John 4, I don't know if you remember, Jesus goes to, to the woman at the well, Samaritan, a Gentile. I mean, the Jew, Jewish people at that time would probably consider her worse than Gentiles. Um, she is a Gentile, and she lives in the Gentile town of Sychar, and he redeems her through speaking to her. She goes into the town. 
gathers a ton of people and their end statement to him is Jesus is the savior of the world. He's not just the savior of the nation of Israel. He is the savior of the world. And the point of this prophecy in Matthew 12 isn't that Jesus didn't first come to save the lost sheep of Israel. It is that he did, but that's not the only reason he came. That's not the only reason he came for the entire world. And so number one, who is Jesus's ministry for? The question, the answer to that question is everyone, everyone. No one is excluded. Jesus is the savior of the world. The word of God is for both the Jew and the Gentile. No one is left out, which is, which is not how Jonah would think of this. Not at this point in the book of Jonah, Ironically, the only prophet commanded to go to a Gentile people, Jonah, viewed his own ministry in a way that shows that he did not believe that the word of God should go to everyone, but in fact, he did believe it was for Israel alone, not any Gentiles, especially not Nineveh. But there is something greater than Jonah here. In Christ Jesus, there is no Jew or Gentile. Christ is all in all, which is why in verse 21, it says very clearly, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And that name is the name of Jesus. That's number one. Jesus's ministry was for everyone. The Jew first, and then the Greek, then the Gentile. But what about number two? How did Jesus... God's son, his chosen servant, conduct his ministry. What was Jesus like? What was he like? Well, we've already seen earlier how he withdrew. Instead of fighting or trying to increase jockey for reputation, Jesus leaves, continuing to heal the people around him and love and care for them. He is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah by doing this. Verse 21 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. I love this verse. This is how Jesus loved. You want to know how Jesus loved? This is how he loved. Isaiah says here through Matthew, he didn't quarrel or cry aloud. He wasn't making a fuss about himself. He wasn't trying to show off. Jesus wasn't interested in making a, a name for himself and seeking glory that comes from men. He wanted the glory that came from his father. That's what he was interested in, in having. And this doesn't mean that he never called out people who were wrong. It does not mean that. Very clear in the New Testament that he did. It doesn't mean that he never locked horns with wicked, evil men who needed to be humbled. He did that. And he engaged people very harshly sometime, but it was never for the sake of his own fame. It was never for the sake of his own glory. He was humble, imminently humble, though ironically, he's the one human being in history that needn't be, because he really is as good as the Bible says that he is. And it talks here about bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. What are those, bruised reeds and smoldering wicks? These are people who are suffering from physical need and from spiritual need. They are suffering physically, 
and spiritually. And the point in this passage is that he cared for both needs, not just physical and not just spiritual. He didn't break a bruised reed. In other words, he sought the healing of people who had been hurt by the world, physically had diseases, were broken. He didn't quench the smoldering faith of the weak. This wick here, instead of quenching it, you don't have enough faith for me, instead of doing that, he softly blew on the flame until it became a fire. This is how Jesus loved. But this isn't how Jonah shows any compassion or loves. This isn't how Jonah does his ministry. Jonah puts, his, puts the lives of the sailors on, on, at risk by running from God, inviting the storm that, that comes to him, just because this is the reason why he didn't want Nineveh to repent and have mercy. He wanted Nineveh to be condemned. He wasn't interested in the physical well-being of anybody, except for himself. He wasn't interested in the spiritual well-being of anybody, as far as we can tell, except for himself, until he had no choice. And on the boat, he had to basically be thrown over. Um, Jonah did not do this at all. But there's something greater than Jonah in this text. Something way greater than Jonah. Jesus always loved like this passage. He always loved like this passage. He was extraordinarily gentle and kind with the people who were bruised and broken in front of him. And he always healed the bruised reed. He always did. And he always fanned the flame of the smoldering wick. And ultimately, as a consummation of those acts of love and grace and mercy, Christ would be broken and quenched himself in our place. And by doing that, he purchases the very healing that all of us need on a physical level and on a spiritual level. That's the gospel. That's what happens on the cross. Jesus dies so that we can live. He's quenched and broken so that we can be healed from all of our brokenness. Which brings us to the final question, question three, which is, when does this happen? The last part of the quote from Isaiah says this. It says, until he brings justice to victory. In other words, all of these things in this passage will happen, Jesus loving people in an extraordinary way, until he brings justice, the thing he's proclaiming, all the way to victory. The original, the original Hebrew from Isaiah 42 is actually more elaborate than, than the paraphrase that Matthew offers here. It says this, He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. In other words, Jesus won't give up until he's eradicated all injustice from the world. He won't. He will not fail. Jesus is not going to fail to bring forth justice. So what this means is this. I want you to, to believe this. I want you to feel this. There is a day coming when this will be real. Justice will be brought to the earth. Justice will be brought to victory. A world will come that is free from the trauma of sin, free from pain, free from death, free from suffering. That is not a fiction that is coming. That day is coming to us. God is promising in this passage 
that justice will be brought to victory one day. This wasn't true about Jonah's ministry. Jonah was commanded to go to the Gentiles at the preaching and preach the word so that they would believe and receive mercy. That's what he was commanded to do. He refused and ran. Jonah did not care at all about God's desire for those lost and broken people to find life. He didn't. And we're going to look more about this at next week. But Jesus does care. He cares. And in Christ Jesus, there is something infinitely greater than Jonah here. There is a day coming when justice will be brought to victory. Sin and its effects across the entire world will be no more. There will be a day when every crime, every disease, every evil that you can conceive of in your mind, every hurricane that slings off the side of the Atlantic into the United States, every one of those will be silenced one day. Sin and its effects will come to an end and the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks will not suffer any longer. So that's the answer to that question. When? There is a great day when Christ Jesus will gather together the children of God, Jew and Gentile, all of them healed because of his work on the cross. Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than Jonah because although he was in the heart of the earth, for three days and nights, the Spirit of God raised him from the dead, vindicating him so that we would know that he is the one who would save us. And this is the same spirit we read about in Matthew 12. And this is where the passage in Matthew 12, I don't know if you can put it back up on the screen, and, um, and us intersect. The passage in Matthew 12 is about Jesus. But there's an intersection for us. There's a reality in here that we need to embrace and live out. For those who reject Jesus Christ... The sign of Jonah is a sign of condemnation. Something greater than Jonah is here. You don't see it. But for those who receive Christ, the sign of Jonah is a sign of profound hope. And here's why. Because when Jesus was buried in the heart of the earth and rose again, he purchased by his blood the same spirit that spoke the words of God through him for us. Listen to Jesus in John 16, 7. He says, I tell you the truth, it's to his disciples. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that Jesus not being with us is advantageous for us? He's going to tell us. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you and you need him. But if I do go, I will send him to you. I will send him to you. This is a very big deal. This is a very big deal because it means the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit who did all of this is dwelling inside of everyone who's received Christ Jesus. The same spirit that God gave the Messiah to do Isaiah 42 is inside of us. And so we need to know there is a day where justice will be brought to victory. But what we've been called as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, is to follow in the footsteps of our master. 
the sign of Jonah presses against us. The greatness of the glory of Christ presses against us to proclaim justice with Christ. It presses against us to continue to love and care for the physical needs of others. Both of those things, loving people in their spiritual need and loving people in their physical need, both of those things. And so what does this mean? What are the takeaways for today? The first thing is this, and we're going to talk more about this next week. We are called to love everyone. We are sent to everyone, Jew, Gentile, all people. There is no category of human being that you are not called to love and care for. None. So if you have a list in your mind of people like that, I would ask you to throw that list away. Every human being is on the table. And we'll talk, like I said, more about that next week. But the second reason, and the reason I want to focus on today is this. We are called to love like Christ loved. And he loved people by proclaiming the gospel of justice, gospel, and all of its effects of bringing righteousness into the world through the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel, a message of hope, and by meeting the physical needs of other people. Meeting physical needs. He was concerned about both physical and spiritual suffering, not one or the other. You cannot look at Jesus' ministry and see, oh, he was just preoccupied with this or that. He, was cared, he cared about both of them. And this is what we're called, if we're, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, to do. This is not just loving in word. It's not just loving in deed. This passage in Matthew 12 says that it's both or neither. That's how Jesus conducted his ministry. He brought both the gospel, a message of profound hope, and then he met physical needs where healing was needed. And this is exactly what we're called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Kingsgate Mission, which if you're going to stay with us and go to the office later on at 1, 1 p.m., right, um, is, I mean, this is the main goal <laughs> of Kingsgate Mission is to love both in word and deed, to meet physical needs, to not neglect physical needs, to meet those, but to love people by proclaiming the message of the gospel, to bring justice into the world through the message of Jesus Christ. And so in a few moments, we're going to worship through the act of communion, the Lord's Supper, where we receive bread and cup, and we remember his body and his blood that were given for us. And so if your faith is in Christ Jesus, you are invited to participate in that. That's for people who trust in Jesus Christ. And I would ask you that as you do that, you consider the sign of Jonah. That the sign of Jonah is still speaking to us from the scriptures and through us in the works of Jesus Christ. And that something greater than Jonah is still here. Jesus isn't gone. He's still with us because if you belong to the to Christ, the spirit of Christ Jesus dwells inside of you, according to Romans 8. He is still bringing justice into the world. He did not stop when he ascended to the Father. <clears throat> he's still bringing justice, and he's just doing it through his own people, through his own body, the church. And so this is why we're here in Kingsgate. This is why we're here in the greater Seattle area. God did not make a mistake by placing you where you are. 
you are geographically where he wants you right now. That may change tomorrow. But he puts you in a place next to many bruised reeds. Next to many smoldering wicks. People who are around you right now. And that are in desperate need of help. And the question is, what will we do? That's the question our lives must answer. We can say what we want with our mouths, but our lives must answer this. How are we following Jesus in this? Are we actually following in the footsteps of our master? One day, justice will be brought to victory, guaranteed. Everything lost by sin. And this week, we've experienced major losses. Everything lost by sin and death will be restored. But until that day comes, we are called to love like Christ and that means meeting the physical needs of people around us and meeting spiritual needs. It means preaching the gospel of salvation and it means showing by our actions that we actually believe what we preach. That's what it means. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest news in the world. There is nothing like it. That the God of the universe took on human flesh, dwelt among us, and then went to a cross to pay for every act of injustice we've ever committed is a profound reality that we will spend eternity exploring, understanding, comprehending. But we also know that that same work on the cross purchased other people who have physical needs and spiritual needs. And they're out there, around us, bruised reeds, smoldering wicks that need to hear the gospel. They need to be cared for physically, Father God. Neighbors, people that are in our workplaces, we have the greatest message in the world. And we are empowered by it to sacrificially serve in a way that no other people group, no other group of human beings on this planet are capable of by the power of your Holy Spirit. So grant us, Father God, a passion and a desire to do that, to work out justice in this world by the power of the Holy Spirit through the grace of what happened at Calvary. And Father, I pray that you would get our hearts, especially in a week like this, get our hearts fixed and anchored in a, a truth in this text that justice will be brought to victory one day. Tears will be wiped away. Restoration in a way that we cannot possibly even conceive of in this world will happen because God has promised through Christ Jesus that it will. Help us believe that. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.